0: can't always get what you want You can't always get what you want But if you try sometimes, well you might find You get what you need Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at PRN.FM every Monday at 10 a.m. That's 10 a.m. Eastern Time. But since we're global, it could be any time you're part of the world. And waiting to come on the air, I just enjoyed listening to one of Gary's old shows, Gary Knoll. And I've known Gary for decades, and such a delight to listen to. Anyway, you can catch dozens of our back shows in our archives at visionaries.podbean.com, that's P-O-D-B-E-A-N as a Nancy, and uh, next week on Visionaries, we're going to have a great guest, Christine Peterson, uh, former president and still very involved with the Foresight Institute, and you'll find me at foresight.org. And they promote nanotechnology. It was co-founded by Christine and K. Eric Drexler, who wrote this book that may still change the world, Engines of Creation. And um, just to preview this upcoming show, it was the late 50s. Um, Richard Feynman published the paper, There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom in which he speculated, you know, when we start dealing with atoms, (laughs) you can make very complicated things in a very small amount of space. So um, we're getting there in our computer chips. But Trexler picked up on the idea and did his uh, Ph.D. thesis at MIT on... The prospect of manufacturing one atom at a time. You have these little fingers that pick up atoms and assemble them. And, of course, you need billions of those things working to make anything of substantial size. You'll find a nifty video online of the showing the assembly of a laptop with one billion processors um, being made one atom at a time. So, uh, for the past couple of decades, people have been... Uh, Trying to bring this technology forward, so you hear a lot about that next week. Today, uh, I want to rant. <laughs> I want to rant about something uh, I'm noticing, and that is <clears throat> we see it everywhere. But uh, I happen to be a college professor, with apologies, uh, <laughs> and uh, but I'm a cool professor. You can look me up on uh, rate. You what was it? RateMyProfessors right, dot <laughs> You'll see what the students think of me, but I I get some academic newsletters, and I'm very aware of something going on on campuses, and that is, pardon the term, uh, being taken over by political correctness, and you might have read about oh uh, an uh, an unpopular namely conservative speaker is scheduled to speak at uh, a university and there are riots students aren't going to let somebody speak with whom they disagree now i think there are plenty of people out there i won't name them but you know who just have uh, (laughs) i wouldn't invite them to talk at my campus there is a lot of obnoxious people out there and why invite them But there are people who have well-considered but uh, controversial ideas. And isn't that what we're supposed to be doing in universities, engaging well-considered ideas and debating them? So there's a lot of uh, um, back and forth about this. And it's only starting on my campus, but it'll get there. We're, We're behind. I teach at Pratt Institute and we're a art architecture and design school it's so great because my students are like they they know, they know why they're there I have a friend, a sociologist and he taught at one of the California universities and he'd say to his student, he's he teaching marriage and the family or something on you know, sociology And he'd say to his students why are you in this class and the answer would be something like well <coughs> soccer meets on Thursdays <laughs> <laughs> and this is the only—I have to take a sociology course, and this is the only one meeting on Tuesdays. Um, but my students are in my courses because they know they want to be architects. And, you know, they won't all be architects, and they'll be architects in many different ways. But overall, they're really motivated and the the painting students in my school uh, can spend the weekend partying. (laughs) My students spend the weekend working on their projects and missing one night of sleep. So they're being readied for an exciting real world. But anyway, um, uh, this idea of used to be that what we wanted to do in our culture and then in my field in architecture and city planning was to do things and starting very interesting we can identify when it happened in the 1970s it started to change and we started to teach the students how to stop things and so rather than saying oh you know, you've got to build this new building. Uh, How do you go about doing that? Instead, we teach them how do you pick it and stop the new building. Uh, Now, some buildings should be stopped. Some highways should be stopped. But uh, maybe, you know, you wonder why we're so stuck in traffic in New York and California these days when the population has doubled and there have been absolutely no new highways And then you say, well, highways are evil. Uh, Got a better idea how to get around? And, uh, well, we'll stop. If you do, we'll stop that, too. (laughs) So Elon Musk is working on his boring company, um, as in boring a tunnel. And with this company, what, what the idea is, he's figured out that you know, you have a traffic jam. Just you know, create a hole, go down, zip along, and come up again, and you can have uh, a nonstop stop throughway. Well, what's new about his approach is he's figured out ways to change the the economies of scale. But I remember when it happened, and it was when a particular book came out. Of course, it was a long process, but you know, we had a lot of bad things happening. In the early 60s, like monster public housing projects, out of control highways, plunging into the centers of cities. Um, If you look at the history of the interstate highway system, the first part of it was going across empty parts of the United States from one city to another. But how do you get on the highway? You're going to drive on local roads for an hour to get on the highway to then get to the next town in a half an hour? and then spend another hour getting into that town. So the last stage was to plunge the highways into the hearts of cities. They didn't do that too sensitively, and it led to a lot of objections. Some bad um, decisions were built, and some others were stopped. But uh, in the midst of all that, started getting books, and... Maybe the first one that was really noticed was Jane Jacobs' Life and Death of Great American Cities about the, uh, how bad the big housing projects were. And then a few years later, we got a magnificent book that is still extremely current, Robert Caro's uh, The Power Broker about Robert Moses. So Robert Moses was this figure who begins his career actually in the late 20s but is going full bore by the late 1930s and he built um West Side Highway, FDR Drive, the Triborough Bridge, Bronx-Whitestone Bridge, a half a dozen other bridges, Faranzano Bridge, uh, Parks, the Jones Beach, housing projects, Lincoln Center. <laughs> you make a map of what he built, it's sort of a map of New York. So, um, but late in his career, he started pushing some projects or maybe going a little too far. Most prominently, he was trying to push Fifth Avenue through Washington Square Park and destroy the park. And uh, Jane Jacobs stopped him, uh, organized, uh, you know, political organization. And she came into prominence. Uh, They became uh, noted adversaries. And eventually, one by one, his powers fell apart. If anybody's interested in how he did it, Uh, Ken Burns' History of New York is very uh, thorough on this. Uh, You can watch two episodes of that, one on the rise of Moses and one on the later fall of Moses. Uh, You should watch the whole thing. It's just this fantastic history of New York. And also you'll find it in the book, The Power Broker. But what he did was uh, (laughs) governors, mayors, and legislators began to realize they couldn't get anything done. And he persuaded them to set up independent bonding authorities, like the Tribal Bridge and Tunnel Authority or the Port Authority. And the Port Authority was not only in charge of the ports, but also built the airports. And the idea was this thing had powers uh, that could not be stopped by mayors, governors, or legislatures because it was put into the state constitution. And... It couldn't cut off its money because it had its own money sources. It could issue bonds. It could say, we're issuing bonds to build an airport. LaGuardia Airport, Kennedy Airport, those are other Moses projects. And um, we're going to charge landing fees for the airplanes. And with that money, we'll pay back the bonds. So with the—or with or we'll build a bridge and we'll charge tolls. And with that money, we'll— uh, pay back the bonds for the bridge. And, you know, of course, we still pay the tolls today. The bonds are long paid back. (laughs) But, you know, the Port Authority said, oh, you know, we can use this uh, money to pay ourselves exorbitant salaries and pad our nests and do all kinds of corrupt stuff. So we still have to pay the tolls, even though the bonds are paid back. But anyway, uh, that was uh, Moses's... um, Ingenious invention. Actually, it was created by, in Paris, by, um, who was the guy who built modern Paris? Something in my mind right now. Um, Lord House Baron Houseman. So, in the late 1800s, Paris realized uh, we, we This won't work. It was a medieval city with rabbit warrens of streets, and you couldn't get from anywhere to anywhere. You couldn't get from one railroad station to another. Uh, the monuments <laughs> were totally cluttered uh, with narrow streets. And Hausman totally rebuilt Paris. He built sewers and boulevards and cleared squares around the monuments and he also did that with an independent bonding authority but anyway um with that book the power broker we began our tradition of priding ourselves in our ability to stop things rather than do things and um As Peter Thiel likes to observe, one of my favorite people, you hear me mention him occasionally. If I mention somebody like Peter Thiel and you find it interesting, what do you do next? Hello, raise your hands, go to YouTube. And uh, you catch, uh, you know, a 10-minute talk by him and, oh, that's what he's about. If you're really into it, you can listen to an hour talk. I like to tease my students. A couple of weeks ago... (laughs) <laughs> After a couple of weeks of of class, I said, uh, you know, like 15 students in the course, uh, how many people regard themselves as curious? So, you know, tentatively, half of them raised their hands. And I said, that's good. How many of you have Googled John Lobel, your teacher? And you know, They were all embarrassed that none of them had. So, you know, if something's interesting, Google it. You're right now. You're listening on PRN.fm, right? You can open another window. <laughs> anyway, um, so Peter Thiel um, also observes that it, things started to go wrong in the 1970s. And... He likes to point out uh, between uh, 1940 and 1970, the average, uh, corrected for inflation, uh, average pay rose 300 percent. Between 30 years from 1970 to 2000 or 40 years to 2010, average pay rose zero percent. So the average wage worker hasn't seen any pay raise in 30 years. So um, what happened? How, how, how you know, <laughs> how do we stop this? How do we stop progress? And, and some people decided progress was a bad idea, and they stopped it. And so they were able to stop it in most areas. <laughs> we stopped it in medicine, uh, transportation, energy, energy. Uh, You know, even with the cost of gasoline coming way down, we're still paying more than we did in the 1960s. Where is that? So uh, the one area they weren't able to stop because it slipped in under the radar before the regulators could get to it and kill it off was computers. And they like to say if automobiles had seen the same progress um, in the past 30 years, computers have seen a Rolls-Royce would cost 25 cents and get 3 million miles to the gallon. (laughs) That's how much uh, uh, computers have improved and transportation has not improved. And so now (laughs) with the retirement of the Concorde and the addition of the security check lines, we need security. Okay, but you know, I, I it, has anybody thought about this? I mean, <coughs> excuse me, something as simple as longer tables so that there's room to get your shoes off <laughs> and get your belt off and stuff it in your uh excuse me. <coughs> stuff it in your uh in your bag. So, um, airplane travel now takes the same amount of time as it did in the 1960s. You know, right when the time of uh, the introduction of the first jets, the 707, uh, that we have it, it's we haven't improved. It's taking the same amount of time to travel. Worse, if you count the taxi ride <laughs> back into the city. So, uh. I, I like to see this in a larger context, being uh, into, uh, I don't like to use the term architectural history, but thinking of culture broadly and symbolically. And we can go back and look at, uh, you know, if you go to the 1400s in Paris, London, Rome, um, Florence, conditions there were probably a lot worse than they were in ancient Rome in 200 A.D. So in 200 A.D. Rome, there was a million people. Um, They all uh, were well-fed. They had the rich had hot and cold running water. The poor had public fountains. There were the baths. Uh, There were sewers. Um, Pretty well organized. You get to 1400s, uh, London, Paris, Rome, Florence, and it's a lot worse than <clears throat> Rome was. Uh, let me do the arithmetic here: um, 1200 years earlier, and not maybe not maybe even worse than Egypt, uh, 2000 BC. So, if you plot a, a graph of world population, wealth, knowledge, science, technology from um, 3000 BC to 1700. You know, it slowly goes up, but you get to 1700, um, and all of a sudden, it starts going straight up. Population, technology, science, knowledge, and if you value democracy, values. Something happened for the first time in a couple thousand years. Now, there was a biggie with uh, the Neolithic. There was a biggie with the first high civilizations, and they had their positives and negatives. Um, Those high civilizations were, you know, built on the backs of slaves. Um, Right now, we're... Still admiring the uh, terracotta army uh, in ancient China in the um, uh, 200s uh, BC, around the time of um, Hellenic Greece, which is a pretty sophisticated place. Uh, we, the uh, Chinese, the first Chinese emperor was building. A funeral site the size of, I mean, is this right? 10,000 football fields with thousands of, you know, armies of thousands done in terracotta. And they don't even know what else, and that they have 90% of it has not been dug up because they don't want to do that until they uh, uh, um, cannot ruin it in doing so. But the records show there were 700,000 people who were essentially slaves building that thing. I mean, where's that at? Anyway, starting in the 1700s, we get this thing, which is now being denigrated, called the Enlightenment. And I think there's two simple ideas that are new. So we have... Very sophisticated achievements in India, in Buddhism, in China, in um, Taoism, in, you know, we go back to 1400 and we have—everybody's now talking about it. I just saw it discussed on C-SPAN. 1438, Admiral He in China launched his uh, uh, armadas of 900 ships with uh, dozens of— giant um, treasure ships, triple hulled, nine masts, ten times the size of Columbus's ships, and uh, uh, maybe even circling the globe. I don't want to talk about that, but certainly plying the Indian Oceans. And the... Um, so they they were technologically capable, but something was missing because by the 1600s, 1700s, Europe was launching ahead and China was stagnating. So I think there's two things, and we associate them with the Enlightenment. And one is rational and scientific thought, that rational and scientific thought replacing— faith and tradition now science is very tricky you know they tell us in uh, high school uh, hypothesis evidence whatever you know the steps of science it's not that way at all but it's more a culture than it is a technique and there's very sophisticated work now at understanding what science is and how it's worked um Certainly recommend Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. You want to read that. Fortunately, for people like me, (laughs) who can't read anymore, my eyes are fine. It's just my attention span. Fortunately, even though this is a somewhat sophisticated academic book, uh, it is on audio. So definitely recommend it. Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. But... I um, also recommend in the, um, the great courses, which you'll find. Um, now, you don't want to buy the, the courses from them. You want to buy them from Amazon because they come in a better format and they uh, are actually much cheaper. So <clears throat> there's one called, what's it called? It's by Goldman and it's Science Wars. Unbelievable, great course, and he starts with the question: Does science give us uh, the absolute um, truth, uh, or does it give us uh, a current approximation? Is it an is, are, are you are you a, a Platonist or an Aristotelian? And he tr- traces the arguments about that um, from the beginnings of the scientific whew, scientific revolution right down to today. So, brilliant stuff. I mean, I listen to it again and again. Uh, excellent stuff. But anyway, science. Rationality and science. And it has its limitations. I'm a big critic of the so-called social sciences, sociology, psychology, um I think most of it is um, um, opinion writing by people who can't get talk shows or uh, or op ed columns in the newspapers um, and so sociology claims to be scientific claims to do studies, but um, there's actually there's a book about business called the Halo Effect, and it looks at those. Uh, business books that claim to be have done all these studies and shows how they were not good studies. But what the uh, book says is applicable uh, in general to the social sciences. I just give you an example. Um, you go to 10 successful companies and say, is your company customer uh, focused? And the CEOs of all 10 companies say, yes, we are. You say, wow, now we know that being customer-focused is one of the things you should do if you want to have a successful company. Well, what's missing? Hello, control group? <laughs> How about you go to 10 unsuccessful companies and ask their CEOs, uh, "Was are your companies customer-focused? And they'll say, yes, we're customer-focused. Do we now know that customer focus is a bad thing because 10 unsuccessful companies were customer... Oh, no, we don't know that. Well, that means that you're presupposing your results uh, before you even do the study. Um, This is not science at all. So anyway, that's my picking on the social sciences. But in general, uh, uh, two great things about what caused the Enlightenment. One is substitution of science and rationality for faith and tradition. And the other biggie is the liberating of the individual, freeing the individual to pursue their own <coughs> maybe lunatic nutcake ideas and not burning them at the stake. <laughs> now, it took a while, right? Um, uh, if you look at the history of um, the history of understanding the solar system, it's taught as uh, the Ptolemaic system, then Copernicus, then Taco Brahe, then Kepler, and then um, Galileo, and then Newton. And with Newton, it you know he had it all pretty much worked out uh, until it was uh, changed by Einstein. Well, Taco Brahe got burnt at the stake. <laughs> I guess it wasn't funny. Uh, Galileo got spent the latter part of his life under house arrest, and Copernicus famously did not publish his work on the solar system until he was on his deathbed. Uh, So they couldn't burn him at the stake (laughs) because he died before they could. So um, uh, it's a gradual process. And, uh, And the Italians were sort of in more trouble than the English. But eventually they got there. So the ability of the individual, step one, first of all, the idea that there's an individual Step two, to pursue their own interests. We'll get back to that. Step three, without, you know, being burnt at the stake. And step four, to be rewarded for it, to be recognized and rewarded. So to this day, uh, and we can maybe begin our story with—, uh, with um, Leonardo da Vinci. I see Walter Isaacson has a new biography of uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Fantastic. I haven't yet uh, been able to listen to his Steve Jobs. I'm, I'm I I've haven't been able to read a biography of John F Kennedy or Steve Jobs. I'm still t- too upset. <laughs> I mean, I still haven't recovered from Kennedy being shot. I mean, the whole world was supposed to be totally different. What happened? And then Steve Jobs, wow, anyway, um, but Isaacson did uh, Steve Jobs' biography, and <clears throat> he just has one coming out now on Leonardo of da Vinci. so that's definitely on my list. I'm not upset about da Vinci's death because he uh, lived a full life. But Da Vinci produced these notebooks, the paintings, of course, but the notebooks. And in those notebooks um self driving cars programmable robots as well as flying machines parachutes uh, and then <clears throat> he to get jobs he'd promote himself as a uh, war uh, military engineer <clears throat> tanks machine guns uh etc so uh he carried those notebooks with him he, he was you know sort of an itinerant uh um, how shall we put it, consultant, and you go to various, um, various uh, lords and say, I'll be your in-house, uh, you know, I'll paint your mistress and uh, create tanks for you <laughs> if you uh, support me. And uh, the Duke of Milan, and then the last one was uh, in France, and he might have been involved in the spiral staircase of, uh, what's that castle? Chambord. But anyway, uh, maybe he knew that to this day, we would be poring over those notebooks. His reward, okay, it wasn't financial, but that he would be remembered to this day. That Walter Isaacson would be doing a yet another biography of him. That there'd be a book called... Uh, what is it? How to be a creative genius like Leonardo da Vinci? Somehow I haven't bothered to read that one. Um, and um, and then others, you know, like Priestly, uh, uh, isolating oxygen. And the uh, so the people in science and chemistry and art uh, pursuing these radically different paths. He didn't do that in other cultures. Um, now, you know, it wasn't always, you know, Priestley had to come to the United States because he was in trouble in England. That was partly because of weird religious uh, um, promotions, but uh, still, um, it, it, it's a process. It was a long, gradual process. But the idea, right, if you, you know, in, uh, when I teach about China, And I really have a lot of respect for these other cultures. I mean, I did study Buddhism with Chinggum Trumpa Rinpoche and uh, um, others, Bob Thurman. Love to have him on the show one of these days. And I um, studied Tai Chi with uh, uh, Professor Chen and... Um, sort of a study of the Tao Te Ching with your body, of Taoism with your body. I'm a student of the Tao Te Ching. But if you look at these other cultures, if you look, for example, at the Tao Te Ching, it's about putting ourselves in accord with the way. And uh, the, the best... Um, representative of the way is nature. So, putting ourselves in accord with the processes of nature, and of course, Confucianism is conforming to your role. So, Confucianism tells us what are the uh, what should be the behavior of uh, the daughter toward the father, the father toward the emperor, the emperor toward his subjects. The, in, in other words, there is a proper role for every person, and you are born into that role. And the point is to um, the virtuous person, the ideal person, what will create happiness in you is to achieve the harmonious state of being in accord with your role, acting properly. Well, uh, Copernicus, Taco Brahe, uh, Galileo, Newton, we're not doing that. (laughs) You know, they were questioning it. And um, the artists of the Renaissance, Um, we look at uh, uh, Botticelli, uh, Birth of Venus. And so uh, jump over in computer to Google Image and put Birth of Venus (laughs) by Botticelli, um, early 1400s. And what do we see there? We see a nude woman. You wouldn't have done that 50 years earlier. And where is Venus in the Bible? She's not. This is a pagan goddess. Uh, So um, there's this whole challenge to the Christian tradition on the part of Renaissance artists. Even something like Michelangelo's David. David's a biblical figure, but he's doing him Michelangelo sculpts him in the style of a Greek sculpture, a pagan figure. And so we see this um, the artists bringing these two traditions together. Well, anyway, with the Enlightenment, uh, we see this gradual, 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 and suddenly an explosion. And To the point where today we're still on that hockey stick uh, that begins in the 1700s. And they were sophisticated people then. You recall, uh, (laughs) uh, you can just see Benjamin Franklin's mother saying, you idiot, you're going to electrocute yourself. (laughs) He could have, too, uh, when he sent a a kite up and touched the key tied to the string to demonstrate that uh, lightning is electricity. Well, there are uh, principles in electricity that we still use today that were postulated by Benjamin Franklin. So, these were, um, you know, already very capable people in the beginnings of the scientific revolution in the 1700s. But today, if you think about it, we're talking about... um, now identifying thousands of other planets and hundreds of, I mean, planets around other stars. They're still in this galaxy. They haven't started, you know, identifying the planets going around the stars in other galaxies. That'll be next. But the idea that we can look at these stars thousands of light years away, identify that there are planets going around them, And now they're looking at the chemistry of the atmosphere in these planets. Remember those 1950s science fiction movies or stories where they would pull a spaceship up to a planet and then they'd say, hmm, the atmosphere seems to be 20% oxygen. There might be life there. And, of course, we now know, no, there is life there because oxygen does not exist in free form unless it's continually being generated by photosynthesis or some other similar process, because <coughs> oxygen is very reactive and it immediately locks up with things. You notice everything oxidizes, like, uh, you know, your food or the paint on the door of your house or whatever. So, um, <coughs> or even steel oxidizes, right? Rust. Anyway, um so we're we're looking at other planets and then we're manipulating single atoms single photons. They can take a single photon, stop it, isolate it, play with its spin um and <coughs> think of when uh they start using those the spins of those photons for quantum computers. I mean, we're right on the path to unbelievable stuff and this was all And so, but my point is, it's all really fragile. It's only been around for 300 years uh, or less. And it could quickly go away. And um, there's a lot of people who want it to go away. And so, uh, one of my guests coming up in a couple of weeks is Virginia Postrel wrote an interesting book called The Future and Its Enemies. So there are a lot of people that don't like this progress. And uh, Virginia Postrel divides the us (laughs) into two kinds of people, what she calls dynamists who favor open-ended change. Now, that's really tricky because open-ended means we don't know what it's going to do. And, you know, like CRISPR— where we now have a technology where any bright high school student can uh, start manipulating the DNA and bacteria. <laughs> There's a Big Bang Theory about that, right? Where uh, Bernadette uh, hands people glasses. She says, oh, wait a minute, don't drink for now. Oh, no, it's okay. <laughs> What's the matter? She says, I'm trying to remember if I wash my hands. We were crossing Ebola with the common cold in the laboratory. <laughs> <laughs> the other characters say, Why would you want to cross Ebola with the common cult? She says, Why would it we, we why would anyone do that? <laughs> well, it's nice that Big Bang Theory is introducing us to this because it's doable. <laughs> we gotta be thinking about this. Uh and one of the people we'll hopefully have on in the near future is Max Tegmark whose new book is Life 3.0, in which he talks about the potential dangers of artificial intelligence. And I was always a skeptic about AI in general and that it could be dangerous, you know, as I would say to my friends. And I'm not particularly worried about our toasters attacking us. But reading this book has me thinking. So, <clears throat> but, so is the bigger danger artificial intelligence – or some kid in a lab, in a in his kitchen, with CRISPR, playing around with bacteria DNA. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> um, we're in a we're in a world where the um, uh, this is people are questioning this, and so is this good or bad? And I'm a fan of is it good. You know, this, the Enlightenment, this continued progress. And so Virginia Postal contrasts dynamists who are in favor of open-ended uh, change. And open-ended means we don't know. Um, and a lot of the things we don't know, like the Internet, have brought us great treasures. So, um, And if the regulators had been there, we wouldn't have had it. I mean, today, with net neutrality, the um, smartphone would not have happened. When Steve Jobs and Apple launched the uh, iPhone, uh, it it could get on the Internet. It had a web browser. You just click, you're on the Internet, or touch, you're on the Internet. Well, you can't do that today without getting it approved by regulators due to net neutrality. Uh, that, how long might that, five years, it might take them to approve that? He just did it. You know, they made the phone, they released it, you bought it in the store, you uh, uh, touched the little icon, and you're on the Internet. Kind of slow for the first couple models, but today it's uh, it's pretty fast. And uh, to the point where <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm... Uh, I haven't figured out the difference between Apple Music and iTunes, and I um, I can't even download the music anymore. I go to download a song. It says, you have this song in the cloud. I, I don't want it in the cloud. I want it on my phone so it'll work in the elevator. I won't let me do it. So I guess I'm connected. But anyway, um, she contrasts these dynamists with what she calls stasists, who are... It's just two kinds. One are against change, and there's a lot of that around. Boy, there's some scary people out there. And the others are in favor of change as long as they can regulate it. That's the European Union. It's one of the reasons England pulled out. And you notice, go down the list. Um, what? IBM, Apple, Hewlett-Packard, uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Google. Um, every one of them's an American company. Where are the Europeans? The only European company is Skype. A couple of kids in their mother's kitchen. But Europe doesn't permit this stuff. Uh, there's smart people there, you know, the people who are doing all this stuff at these companies come from Europe and Asia, as much as... Americans are having trouble with this now because you have to be able to do fractions, and um, uh, our our teachers can't handle fractions anymore, so we've had a little problem. I'll talk about it, my thoughts about education sometime. But then uh, there's a book called The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley. Um, wonderful book on uh, the progress of ideas, and he goes back to Paleolithic, but and his uh, his underlying premise is a real fun one, which is he says, the thing that causes progress is sex between ideas. Oh, let's put a telephone together with the Internet. Who would have thought of that? Actually, there's this great story. I was following this stuff because I had actually— uh, launched an online company even before the internet. We were using bulletin board software. And so, you know, we had Cisco routers, and I knew about this stuff. And Cisco had developed an entire telephone system that was internet-based, which pretty much is what we have today. Um, And, you know, copper wires, the phone company doesn't even maintain those anymore. Uh, You know, that's why if you have trouble with your copper phone and None of my students have a landline anymore. But what Cisco did was they developed an entire Internet-based phone system, and their big customers were the phone companies for their equipment. And the phone companies said, you're not going to launch that, because if you do, we'll stop buying your stuff. And so uh, they were able to stop stop it, and our phone systems are still not what they should be because of the phone company's ability to stop. They also destroyed my company, but uh, that's another story. But um, another of my favorite books about this is The Beginning of Infinity, and it's by David Deutsch. And David Deutsch is one of those people who's, you know, that he has a little little fan club that people just think of. He, says, he sort of uh, came up with the fundamental algorithms that made possible quantum computing. So he's the pioneer of quantum computers. So um, we like to follow him. And he's also an advocate in quantum theory of the many worlds theory. In other words, what happens when the particle can go... Uh, through either slit? And his answer is, the universe splits, and in one universe goes through one slit, and it goes through the other slit, in the other universe. So, and since this happens countless times every moment, there's a lot of universes, like a lot. Not just one where Germany won World War II. You know, that's a popular one for the movies about that. But <coughs> infinitely many. Anyway, in the beginning of infinity, what he means by infinity is no limits to our knowledge and abilities. That will keep expanding our knowledge and abilities. And in doing that, um, he sees a point where it begins, uh, which is the enlightenment. And he sees the point where the points where it might be cut off. He's more optimistic than I am. I think there's a real danger of uh, it being cut off. That's because I come from the arts. Everybody I'm mentioning are sort of techie people. And I'm a big fan of Oswald Spengler. And Spengler points out that cultures sort of have lifespans. So our Western scientific culture is, um, you know, we like to think, oh, that's just human nature. That's, you know, all of humanity has now uh, gone in this direction. Well, no, the West has. And the rest of the world is doing it, but they might not be happy about it. And the West might run out of gas, which I'm seeing everywhere, Um, despite the efforts of—so a couple more of these. Oh, uh, another book uh, I should recommend that has this optimistic point of view is Peter Diamandis' Abundance. He co-authored it. I'm forgetting his co-author's name right now. But— um, if you want to follow this stuff, uh, Peter Diamandis is one of the people um, you might want to follow. He has a daily newsletter of uh, cool stuff. I noticed I'm, you know, I used to subscribe to, you go down the list, right? Scientific American, Discover, uh, Science Newsletter, and New Scientists. I don't subscribe to any of them anymore. Because it by the time you get these magazines, it's old old hat. Uh, you get all this online. So KurzweilAI.net, I think it is. Uh, Ray Kurzweil keeps us up, but also Peter D, Peter Diamandis now, now has one. Ray Kurzweil is now one of the key people in charge of artificial intelligence at Google. So he's putting less effort into his newsletter. I'm seeing less material there, but others have picked it up, and so. Uh, Peter, I'm not sure where you subscribe, but you'll find it. Um, he's co-founder of Singularity University, so you might find it there. But I just got one last night. Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are predicted to be the two wealthiest people on the planet given the dramatic rise of SpaceX, Tesla, and Amazon, as well as, as their large ownership in their respective companies. Uh, then, uh, as a space cadet, me, Pierre Diamandis, since age nine, this is exciting news, um, because <laughs> they're going to Mars. <laughs> so Elon Musk has announced his new rocket ship, which he'll um, have ready by. When's this? Uh, anyway, uh, you'll you'll have seen it online. Um, I'm also linked to these people on Twitter, so it keeps you up on this. Link to Elon Musk on Twitter. His next-generation spaceship uh, can take a hundred people to Mars um, <clears throat> for the you know the first colonists. They're not sure how they'll get them back, <laughs> but uh, but also that same rocket ship will be able to get you from anywhere to anywhere. Uh, in an hour, and most places to most places in 30 minutes. So, you know, New York to London in 30 minutes. Uh, New York to Tokyo in 40 minutes. So, um, it's actually happening. (laughs) Interesting. I was at a conference um, a while back, and I described a project I work on. I'm director of research for timeship which you'll find at timeship like spaceship but timeship.org and uh it's a project that uh our clients are working on immortality they're looking for the uh, genetic causes of aging and turn it off and in the meantime we're developing a next generation um <clears throat> a next generation cryo storage facility case they don't make it. And I presented this at a conference of uh, mostly people in art education. Now, I'm um, a hybrid person. You know, I'll go to uh, cutting-edge nanotechnology conferences and be the only person there from the arts. And then I'll go to uh, an arts conference or an art education conference and be the only person there with a tech background. So I don't know, you know, I think we need more people like me (laughs) that are going to both because both would benefit knowing more about the other. But anyway, I described this project and a very articulate person there started getting kind of challenging. And, you know, a lot of um, humanists don't like immortality. Um, and uh, just uh, in, uh, what's it called, Um, uh, to divulge where I stand. There's a word for that. But I'm not wearing a bracelet. But I I go to conferences where everybody there is wearing a bracelet that says, in case of death, pack head in ice and call this 800 number. (laughs) Because they're all signed up to be frozen. So I'm not signed up, but... Um, I am involved in the technology of this stuff. So, anyway, this, um, uh, I presented this uh, Timeship project, or mentioned it, and somebody started challenging me, and it became evident. He said, these are private citizens who are funding this. And I said, right. And if you're into this, there's something called 2045. These are Russian oligarchs working on this. And now they all are. I mean, Larry Page, uh, um, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, most of these tech billionaires uh, are putting hundreds of millions, if not literally billions of dollars into eliminating disease, old age and death. Um, They're all working on projects and uh, as my group is. But anyway, (laughs) this person was bothered by the fact that it was private people doing this, you know, like regulators should be doing this. The government should be doing this or the government should be stopping this. And uh, right now we're not regulated. <laughs> Actually, cryonics facilities have to register as mortuaries. You know, if you have a uh, pardon the expression, if you had dead bodies in your facility, uh, you can't do that in uh you can't do that in, uh, you know, in any office space, uh, industrial space in a strip mall. But you can if you're a mortuary. So you have to be registered as a mortuary. So, But that's the only regulation of cryonics. So listen, uh, my rant today has been about uh, are uh, we going to try to stop the kinds of progress that the Enlightenment has brought us, for the past um 300 years and uh go back to uh pardon the expression the uh, dark ages and i think there are a lot of people that that's uh what you know they're trying to bring us and uh i'm a fan of open ended change which obviously has its risks you know in the, in the in the form of these uh uh, Pride High School students that are at their in their parents' kitchens uh, reprogramming the DNA of bacteria. <laughs> hopefully somebody's keeping an eye on them, but in the meantime uh I think that the uh, excitement about the world we live in has come from this open-ended change, and I'm a fan. So this is John LaBelle. You've been listening to Visionaries at prn.fm. You'll find us here every Monday, and see you next week.